0: Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance podcast. On today's show, we have Jesse Green, the head of sports science at the Sacramento Kings basketball team in the NBA. A big thanks to former guest of the Informed Performance show, Dr. Jazz Dower, who introduced us to Jesse. Jesse, as you'll hear in this episode, provides us with both some technical and also very practical applications for comparing data sets, approaching load management, and also periodization during competition windows. If you're enjoying the Informed Performance podcast, then head over to informperformance.com where you can also consume our digital magazine, featuring articles from some top-class practitioners in our industry. By reading the magazine, you will also be entered into our competition giveaway, where we are going to be giving away a push training band to one lucky winner. As I said, head over to informperformance.com to enter the competition and also to read the free digital magazine. Today's episode of the Informed Performance podcast has been sponsored by Vald Performance, makers of the Nordboard. The Nordboard has become the gold standard for assessing field-based hamstring strength. By combining advanced sensors, real-time data visualizations and cloud analytics... The Nordboard helps practitioners to accurately measure, monitor, and train individuals' hamstring strength or imbalances. To learn more about the Nordboard, visit our sponsor, volperformance.com. You're listening to the Informed Performance Podcast with me, Annie McDonald, and here is today's episode between myself and Jesse Green. Jesse, welcome to the show, mate. It's, uh, it's great to have you on.
1: Thanks, Andy. I appreciate
0: it. Just so the, the listeners can get some context, just in case they haven't come across you yet, would you be able to kind of uh, tell us about your background, kind of like your roots into the industry and kind of bring us forwards to the current day?
1: yeah mate for sure and firstly, I think it'd be remiss not to sort of acknowledge the the resource you 're putting out there. I think you're doing a great job here with um, you know getting some very valuable people on the podcast and you 're putting great content out there so there 's that piece but sort of to go all the way back for me um grew up in country south australia, um, played you know country football a f l that is and realized pretty quickly that that wasn 't going to eventuate into a career, so decided to do what a lot of practitioners do i feel is um you know, if you can't play the sport, you may as well work in it and get as close as you can to that sport. So, decided sports science was a, uh, a reasonable career to pursue. Um, went to Bond University on the Gold Coast uh, in Australia, which was awesome. I uh, was there for an accelerated two years um, to get my bachelor in sports science. Decided to stay on uh, for a third year, which was the honors research year. So, I did that honors research year and That was sort of a simultaneous placement at the Brisbane Lions Football Club, which is uh, just about an hour north of the Gold Coast in uh, Brisbane, Australia. And that was sort of my first uh, step in the door uh, into high-performance sport. And, you know, being very young, I think I was about 19 when I first stepped foot in the door there, it was very eye-opening in terms of all of these different pieces that actually contribute to the day-to-day in high-performance sport. I mean, you learn sort of the the grassroots level and a lot of mechanical, sorry, mechanistic stuff in your undergrad, but to actually be in the field directly after that was was pretty eye-opening. Um, so I was there at the Brizzy Lions for about, let me see, it was three and a half years in a number of different roles. Uh, the first couple of seasons was more of like an assistant across the board. I think the official title was a, a physical performance assistant. Or something like that, where predominantly I was working um, with the rehabilitation groups, so our RTP guys, assisting out the uh, the rehab strength coach with setting up sessions, you know, collecting the external loads, RPEs, all that sort of stuff, and then pitching in with the main group in the gym or nutrition and washing protein shakers and all that fun stuff. Um, and then that sort of role progressed a little bit under some new management to uh, an academy role, so it was an academy. Uh, strength strength conditioning coordinator for um, just over a year um, and that was awesome too i really think that for anyone coming out of their undergrad or anyone looking to get into high performance sport to get your hands on a program in the sense that you're running the entire thing and it doesn't have to be necessarily yourself but you're responsible for you know the periodization the conditioning the strength the you know and everything in between nutrition loads everything I think that's the best thing you can do as a young practitioner is sort of get your hands on an entire program and, you know, see how all these pieces fit together and also it forces you to prioritize what's important. So, that was sort of my uh, my final year at the Brisbane Lions and then halfway through that year, I was lucky enough to get a role with uh, the University of Louisville over here in the States in uh, Kentucky. and uh, That was sort of like a 50-50 role of half strength and conditioning, half sports science or performance analytics as as it was called. Um, again, got the chance to, uh, run the program for, for one sport there, which was awesome and contribute to a n- number of other sports, um, in both strength, conditioning and sports science capacities. Um, so again, that was awesome. I, I really think that that's where I really sharpened the sword in terms of some of my, um, well, I guess both sides, strength, conditioning and sports science upon reflection, but I was there for about 14 months. And then, um, Tina Murray, who was the director of Olympic sports there at the time, uh, she hired me from Australia. She actually got a role as the, the VP uh, of health and performance here at the Sacramento Kings and was very fortunate to come with her uh, back in September 2018. And I've been here ever since.
0: Man, I'm quite similar to you actually hearing that story. And uh, I, I cut my teeth when I was, you know, similarly enough, 19 as well. Uh, and I was a, a scrawny strength and conditioning intern at Bristol, uh, Bristol Rugby at the time, Bristol Bears now. Um, yep. And I remember my interview. Uh, with Paul Hull, the head coach at, at the time, being asked, you know, how will I command respect or authority. And I, I don't know what terrible answer I gave him, but it, it could, I can't have been good. I'm just, uh, I'm cognizant that we might have some young listeners listening to this show and, and the podcast in general. How long was it until you felt like you kind of filled your boots and, uh, you know, got, got to a, an age or got to a level where you were, you know, maybe listened to by players or, or felt. Um, effective essentially
1: yeah sure good question i mean i think it was it's certainly in the three sort of main positions that i've held in in my very short career i think it's very much dependent on the environment you're in and also the leadership that is above you i mean ultimately the leaders that hire you are going to either set you up for success or not set you up for success essentially so i think it's it's more about the time spent in each individual uh role i felt like at the lions um back in Brizzy, back home, um, it, it certainly took a couple of years and that was not only a result of me being extremely green and fresh in the in the industry, but, you know, trying to get a grip on all of the different directions that these athletes are being pulled in and, you know, what is worth from, from my end, what is worth pursuing, what is worth letting slide and what's worth sort of chasing up. Um, so I still think I'm learning that for sure. Um, yeah, I don't think there's a direct age related to that, but still learning that for sure.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. And what was the, you know, what triggered the move to the NBA? Um, How did that kind of come about?
1: Yeah, good call. I mean, as a college environment, I'm sure you know, and, and for the listeners that don't, I mean, it's extremely intensive in terms of, I mean, you might get given three or four different teams that have alternating schedules. So, In the college environment that I was in, I was working with uh, four to five teams, depending on the time of the year. And I was always in in in-season, always in pre-season and always in the off-season. So there's just so many moving pieces um, that you have to be aware of and that you have to be cognizant of at any given time. Um, And quite honestly, I just wanted to work and I always knew this, that I just wanted to work with one team and just devote all of my time and all of my expertise um, and all my time essentially to just the one team. So as soon as this opportunity arose,
0: that sort of met that criteria, and I was um,
1: yeah, I couldn't be quick enough to accept the role.
0: Yeah, and you you know you jumped in as a, a performance analyst uh, originally at the Kings uh, before becoming head of sports science. As a as a kind of performance analyst, what what were your roles and responsibilities then, and kind of how has that changed now with you heading up the department?
1: yeah sure so uh, initially it was a lot of surveying the current environment is sort of coming in and seeing okay what has been done really well what's been you know done for a, consistently for a long time and because these things are quite difficult to change you know once you instill something in a culture it's it might actually be a, a negative impact that you're making if you come in and you completely remove that it could be something that's had a lot of time spent on it being instilled in the program but Nonetheless, it was a matter of coming in, surveying the environment, um, identifying the gaps, I feel. Uh, a good analogy I like to use is, you know, when I was a kid, we'd be down at the dinner table and before dad would even try his food, he would put salt and pepper on it and uh, mum would get mad, naturally, of course, because he hadn't even tried the food yet. So, I like to think of that analogy every time I come into a new environment or even into a new season is, you know, let's appraise what we've done in the past. Let's identify the gaps and then add salt and pepper accordingly. So, Back then, I think it was very heavy on that appraisal and then consequently on collection uh, and analysis and just instilling these certain pieces that I know I wanted to um, instill early such that you know two, three years down the road where I am now, I now have two to three years of that data that we're able to analyze and to reflect upon. And you also asked me about, uh, I guess, how my role has changed from when I first started here with the Kings in a performance analyst Capacity and working into this more of a sports scientist, a head of sports science role, um, I think ultimately it was quite a natural progression. There was no abrupt change. You know, I woke up the next day and I was all of a sudden managing this and managing that. I think it's been a logical progression, which has been nice. Um, I feel like now more so than the last or when I began about three years ago is I'm trying to be a bit more of a T-shaped employee. Um, and I'm sure people have read um, Range and the other books that reference this. But you know, having one deep specialization, um, whether it be sports science or strength conditioning, whatever you choose, but having that, you know, the top of the T where you can also you know, be in a conversation or be in a room with a lot of other disciplines within the organization too. Can I have a conversation with strength coaches? Can I have a conversation with our therapists, with the player development coaches, with the head coach? That's something I'm really trying to develop as well. Because ultimately, if we don't have the trust in the relationship of these key pieces in the program, it's it's just not going to work. It's just not going to work. We have to be able to speak the same language, and you know, at the pace at which the NBA moves and, and professional sports in general, for that matter, you have to be able to speak the same language in the sense that if I'm if I mention something in passing, or if we're in a meeting um, and we have a finite time to to go over our players, that we can efficiently prioritize our time efficiently prioritize our players' time as well. So, I would say trying to become a more T-shaped employee is certainly something I've associated with um, this new role as head of sports science. Um, and also trying to move uh, towards a bit more of a deeper analysis of our data as well, uh, as opposed to day-to-day where it's, you know, if we do X today, what happens tomorrow? If we do Y today, what happens in the next couple of days. I mean, that still takes up a lot of my time, but really trying to take a step back as well and take some a deeper analysis on a you know, month-to-month, season-to-season as, you know, we did this last year. This is what eventuated. What if we do that again? Or what if we slightly change it? Um, essentially, just a long-term auditing process and constantly auditing our program and auditing what I do to, I guess, continually to get better and trying to continue to make our team get better and Uh, our health and performance team get better as well
0: yeah and we we had uh clive brewer on the show recently and i threw some quite conceptual questions his way around um you know what is sports science as as he sees it or how as he defines it but you know as you've worked in industry how has kind of sports science changed or at least how have your questions or performance based questions changed uh for the things that you focus on
1: I think in the past, especially the past year, for sure, they've become I guess they've become less granular, a little bit more global, less you know how does one thing affect another thing you know within the same data set, for example, and more so, more global in terms of okay, if we, let's say, for example, if we take this intervention when we're on the road, or we practice in this manner or we do this type of practice uh, when we're on the road? What is the impact of that down the road as opposed to early on it was, you know, sets and reps and you know, individual pieces of information. I think the, the more experienced I get and, you know, sort of the more uh, years I log, it's, it's looking more globally at the program and sort of working on the program as opposed to in the program, um, I think is something I've certainly taken to in the last couple of years.
0: You've spent a decent amount of your career in field sports and then more recently the, the better part of three years uh, in basketball. How do the kind of sports compare for you in terms of what you do as a practitioner?
1: Yeah, I think that's a good question. I mean, field-based sports quite often um, have a consistent microcycle. I mean, they play one to two games a week on a similar timeframe. But if we dig in a little bit deeper and go a little bit more granular than the weekly and we look at just the game itself or the, the competitive events themselves outside of practice, basketball is actually relatively low volume, but it's extremely high intensity. Um, In my experience, the game has been the largest stimulus of the week. So practices, um, training, all of that sort of stuff on the court or on the field has been typically less than the game itself. But in basketball, it's a little bit the opposite, Um, especially from a load standpoint. Basketball, it's extremely high intensity for the minutes that you're out there. But I could quite easily go out onto the court and, you know, in a 60-minute practice or a longer practice, accumulate the same amount of load. Uh, that we see in a game in a practice environment. So that's something that took a little bit of getting used to, I would say, is that usually that game at the end of the week is what you're preparing for and everything sort of falls below that mark and there's this big spike as the game on the weekend, whereas in the NBA or in basketball at least, um, the way we track things and the way we evaluate our external lows is it's, it's a little bit the opposite. Games are these really high-intensity, low-volume um, high neural demand, high psychological demand stimuli and practices are lower volume and sorry, higher volume and tend to be slightly lower intensity. Um, so that's something that's certainly gotten used to in, in the past couple of years, but it's also made it extremely interesting to analyze. And that's uh, that's why I do what I do is trying to dig in, and reveal some of these, uh, you know, some of these nuances of the sport of basketball itself.
0: Yeah, it sounds like a, an interesting, but probably initially a very challenging kind of paradigm shift for you
1: oh no doubt no doubt
0: uh there's endless questions and data points that we could chase after and depending on uh, how far down the rabbit hole we want to go how do you personally prioritize or identify the information that would be most helpful or most impactful on performance or injuries perhaps
1: sure sure i think I think there's two things, two key components to that question. The first thing is it's got to be ecologically valid. I mean, it has to work in this environment. You have to ask yourself, will this work or will this measure what it's supposed to measure in my environment? I think early on, I was certainly um, guilty of this as making the mistake is, you know, you read something in a paper, you know, X, Y, and Z is valid, um, good to go. And then you would plug it straight into your program. But validity has multiple sort of sub-components to it. You know, you have construct validity or different types of validity, I should say. And, you know, ecological validity and face validity are extremely important, um, especially when you're working, you know, with very high-profile players that quite often see through some of the uh, uh, the minutiae or see through some of the things that potentially might not even matter. So that's sort of the first component. And then I think the second component is you got to have detailed conversations. You've got to be a really good listener, I think, to coaches, players, and the people you work with. I mean, everyone sort of has their own philosophy within how they operate. So I believe anyway that the sports scientist or a role similar to mine is a facilitator. We're trying to facilitate the physios to provide better treatments. We're trying to facilitate the strength coaches to provide better prescriptions in the weight room. And just like we're trying to facilitate the players to get better – We're trying to facilitate the coaches to, you know, plan better practices or, I guess, develop our plays in such a way that's productive for everyone in the organization. So, I think they're the sort of two key components that I think about uh, when you ask that question.
0: Talking about ecological validity in in some different sports and some different sports in leagues around the world, there's a a difference between the sort of the data and the monitoring that you can collect during training versus in a competitive arena. How do you, you know, whether it's basketball or whether it's a different sport, how do you kind of personally approach trying to sort of match up the validity of, you know, maybe the training environment versus the competitive arena when you don't necessarily have the the data set for what the difference might be?
1: Yeah, sure, good question. I mean, I think it for me it comes all the way back to game demands and having a really good understanding of the game demands and evaluating those as best as possible. And I think this is also reflected. In the literature as well, I mean, there's going to be papers until the end of time that analyze the game demands deeper and deeper and deeper, which I think is absolutely essential to progressing the field. I think the better we know the game from a physical standpoint, from a movement standpoint, and a technical tactical standpoint can allow us to pick better metrics that describe the game. Uh, An easy example is I think if we look at field-based sports, you know, some of my experiences in AFL, where you know total distance, high-speed distance, sprint distance, these metrics are, you know, across the board, they're pretty commonly monitored. I would say in in most clubs. Whereas you translate that to the basketball environment, and total distance, high speed, and sprinting. I mean, they don't really even reach these these sprinting thresholds or these high speed thresholds. So, you've really got to appraise the game and sort of. Allow the demands of the game to pick the metrics for you, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, and just use some common sense as well, I think is, is the, ultimate, uh, the ultimate caveat to that.
0: Let's get into, uh, into workload. I know you've got an interest in external load monitoring uh, and, and I'm sure that's only been heightened working in the NBA. Um, we, we all know what metrics you can pull and observe maybe superficially. But if you kind of dig deeper, what can you uh, what can you find? And feel free to make that answer, NBA uh, context-specific or not. Yeah, sure. Um, again, I think going back
1: to some of the research done by um, Jace Delaney, Grant Duthie, Rich Johnson, they're currently looking at the distribution of load and how that relates to the peak intensities that we see in the game. Uh, so there's a big influx of research probably within the last five years about identifying peak intensities using a moving average approach which i think is fantastic i think that's a great way to go about it um, in terms of identifying or and preparing for the peak intensity as opposed to just going with the average but what we find with that is that's only half a piece of the puzzle i mean identifying these peak intensities let's say using a one minute rolling duration is you know that's only one minute i mean we can't overload our guys using this one-minute peak intensity every single day. I mean, this is just something that occurs in one instance in a game. So, what I think some of the data is going towards now or the industry is going towards now is looking at the distribution of the entire uh, game or practice or whatever the stimulus is, looking at the distribution of load within these different buckets relative to that peak intensity. So, if our peak intensity is you know, ranked as 100%, well, how much of the load encountered during a game falls, you know, below 50% of that peak intensity or between 75 and 85 or whatever sort of bucket we choose. I think that's a really good way to go about it is that we're using the game and using the game demands to then drive the analysis for how we measure the different intensity and the different loads that have been encountered in those different buckets. And then I think second to that as well, in a more specific example like basketball, we, um, we looked at doing that similar analysis and we did that in the off-season this past year and you know, looking at a one-minute rolling average in basketball just doesn't tend to make sense. I mean, the ball in play periods are very, very brief. Uh, we actually did an analysis with, uh, with our players, with our starting players and found that the most common ball in play period, um, so any period that wasn't broken up by out of bounds, timeouts, end of quarter, all of those stoppages, was actually 15 seconds, which is extremely brief. So therein lies another way in which we use the game or we analyze the game a little bit deeper to provide us with little tools or little clues to further
0: analyze the game demands with.
1: So I think it sort of feeds into each other.
0: Would you, you know, if you're just using uh, moving averages in that situation, would you just end up with an undercooked appreciation for the intensity because of how much off? Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, we looked at, just as I was curious, I looked at uh, how many one minute rolling durations of play there were and it was only a handful. I mean, we're talking less than 1% of ball in play periods in an entire season are, uh, are greater than a minute. So they're very seldom, very, very seldom.
0: You know, still with load in mind, uh, how do you combine or how do you approach combining various data sources uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, sometimes two different data sets can be wildly different? And, you know, so how do you compare apples and oranges, essentially?
1: Sure, sure.
0: I mean, as simple as it sounds, I think you've just got
1: to start by getting all all of these data sets in front of you. And whether it's on an individual level or team level, I mean, I don't want to go into too much depth in terms of different methods of comparison because that's probably a whole nother episode in itself. But, Again, it sounds really simple, but just get them all in front of you, whether you're using you know, Excel and AMS, um, R, Python, whatever visualization software you're using, find a way to get them all onto one page so you can see how they all change relative to each other. And I think the next step to that is, and this is sort of how I operate now, is normalize all of those metrics using the same time timeframe. Uh, and normalize it, whether it's a Z score, standard deviation, a STEN score, um, which is what I like to use. It's on a nice, simple scale. Put them all uh, onto the same axis or put them all on the same chart and normalize them. And then you can really start to see the variance within those different metrics and how they change over time. And, you know, irrespective if they're on completely different scales from an absolute standpoint, I mean, if we're looking at you know, load numbers versus counter movement jump numbers. Once they're normalised, it allows you to plot those on the same scale. Allows you to see the different, uh, or allows you to measure the change or visualise the change simultaneously over time. So, I think that's probably step one in terms of combining different data sources. Um, second to that, I think there's some good work out there on, you know, internal to externals, um, subjective to objective load ratios and you know wellness ratios and all these different ratios which I also think is a great way to go about it but you've just got to keep in mind that whenever you create a ratio of any sort that you are compounding the error of both of those metrics so I think um, if you are going to go down that route of creating a ratio or creating any sort of um, scaled metric that you do look at the components individually at the same time.
0: I think you know, regardless of what um tech or current research nuance is, is trending we as an industry we evolve we, we innovate and we evolve uh, with that in mind how do you you know what do you think about and what do you consider when you go to implement or change maybe the technologies that you use you know in sport or the NBA?
1: yeah i mean it is unbelievable isn't it i mean the amount of technology that we see appear on a what feels like a month-to-month basis now i mean just looking at um you know velocity-based training, for example, we can see there's well over 30 different companies now um, measuring velocity within the weight room. so it's certainly um, certainly something I think practitioners these days need to have and need to think about as a good filter uh, for these technologies and being very being cautious in terms of adopting them quickly, but also having a great understanding of reliability, validity, specificity, and sensitivity as well. Um, I think it goes back to that previous point we were talking about in terms of ecological validity and face validity as well. Um, I mean, it can come down to the position that the sensor is worn for the athlete for it to be um, adhered to or not. I mean, it's really that simple. Um, But, yeah, having a good understanding of validity and reliability, I think, is essential Um, if it passes those – well, that initial validity test – I think start with it on yourself, as simple as that. I mean, I always start if we're thinking about implementing a new technology. I'll run with it for maybe two, three, four weeks myself. And if it passes those tests, then I might try it on some of our staff. And then from there, some of our you know, G League players. Uh, and then from there, we push it up to our, our NBA team. I mean, it's just a, a logical progression of um, yeah, going through those key steps, I believe.
0: We had Andrew Gray on, who you might know, a fellow Australian, not too long ago in the podcast, and he was talking about ADI and um, how he's able to kind of uh, go more into GPS and combine maybe, you know, the movement data more so with technical and tactical than people have thought of before. Um, How do you kind of blend technical and tactical data with movement data to, to kind of contextualize it? Sure. Um, I mean,
1: Andrew is a top practitioner. I haven't met him personally, but I love his content and I love his stuff. So shout out to Andy. But I think this is a, this is a big area for growth in the sports science industry is blending the, the physical, the movement, the location data, whatever you'd like to call it, with the technical and the tactical data. I mean, that's only going to drive conversation and more conversations with the skill coaches, uh, the head coach and the player development coaches. Um, and anything that can drive that integration between those two parties further is only a good thing. Um, I think an example where we've used it in the past is in a return-to-play setting, return-to-play process, especially late, is we have our location data. So we have, you know, the data that players have on an X, Y coordinates on the court or on the field of play, whatever. And we just simply created a heat map, Um where the sort of the heat signature on the map itself was related to the acceleration um, specifically related to high end accelerations or more aggressive accelerations and decelerations. And what that actually revealed is for that certain player, where they tended to accumulate these more stressful movements, these more stressful higher end axels and decels. So then what we were able to do is take that to the skill coaches and say, look, this is where um, the majority of his stressful movement occurs and automatically they can look at that and say oh yeah of course because that's x play or that's this play that he's constantly running or he's a key component of so there and large sort of lies a, a bigger point in that if we can create or we can blend these two types of data that we can drive conversations and ultimately drive better processes especially in the return to play environment which is you know specific to the example i just gave and that that heat map sort of drove the session for that certain day or week but I think that's just a little example of where we can blend those two data sets together and ultimately have a greater effect on, or greater, um, I guess, contextualizes our data a lot better because it's ultimately technical and tactical data or the, the actions that the players perform technically and tactically that result in winning the game. So if we can contextualize our data to that data set, I think that's the, the right way to go.
0: Yeah, what a great example of um, yeah, the collaboration between you as a sports scientist Um, you know maybe the strength conditioning coach or PT but also the playing coach Um, you know what a nice way to collaborate but also periodize that return to play process
1: yeah for sure I mean as I said it's uh, constantly trying to drive further dialogue and further conversations especially with our skill development coaches um, as well
0: I want to talk about the transfer of principles into kind of actual reality and to preface this uh, Old-fashioned kind of periodization models didn't uh, once have to account for maybe the on-field training and the and the game schedules. And you know, we're quite commonly in this conversation talking about load and strategies around it. What principles you know remain true, and what becomes redundant when you've got this noisy kind of NBA schedule, where you're on the road a lot, and the the game frequency is high, and occasionally you know inconsistent.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, this is something I spend a lot of time thinking about, like really in terms of how our schedule is is planned or you know how haphazard the schedule is planned in terms of its um, randomness. But I guess to quote Aaron Coots, I think that the tenets of don't do too much, don't do too little and don't change things too quickly holds true irrespective of the sport you're in. But that being said, I mean, true periodization is obviously built on you know, expected adaptation to given stimuli, whereas... In the NBA environment or in any sort of haphazard training environment, it's it's almost like the, the planning uh, and different stimuli that you are planning is based on the readiness and the freshness, I guess you could say, of the athlete at any given point. I mean, many sports have a consistent microcycle. So, you know, they might play one or two games a week every Friday, Sunday for 10 weeks or so. Then you have consistent game day minus ones, game day minus twos, and so on that you can measure responses based on. So you can see, okay, for a normal game day plus two or two days after a game, is this how they're normally responding? Is it better? Is it worse? Is it the same? That's a really nice way to compare. Um, whereas in the NBA, I mean, pretty much every day is is a game day minus one. Uh, we have five game day minus twos uh, in the first three months of the season. So that sort of just sheds a little bit of light on how much we do play. I mean, I think it's. 3.45 games per week, something like that. So, it's pretty much every other day. So, there's very little standardized in this respect. So, I think what we have to do is um, really rely and really make sure that we're collecting appropriate readiness data or how they're responding to the given workloads. And that's got to be something that's pretty constant as well. Uh, in the past, I've you know, done a lot of weekly check-ins and assessing things on a weekly basis, which you know, as I said, when you have a consistent microcycle and you can measure based on a consistent or reliable timeline, um, it works great. But when you know, every week is different to the next and you slap on travel and you slap on you know, an overtime game or buses and planes and all these things, I think your periodization strategy has to include data from a multitude of different sources, um, subjective and objective, obviously. But having a process or having a system for how you integrate that data is equally as important. I think. Um, so, nonetheless, I think back to your original question in terms of old-fashioned periodization, some of those tenets hold true, uh, but nonetheless, we have to be adaptable. I mean, I don't think the Russians back in the 1900s were planning on you know 3.5 games per week in a completely random manner.
0: <laughs> and, and this next one's uh, maybe a little bit contextually vague, but in some sports, if you were to speak to two, uh, you know, if you speak to in, in seasonal sports, if you speak to two different S and C coaches, you might get two different answers on uh, whether you can expect some adaptation physically um, and training maturity in season or not. Um, and excuse my naivety, but how much adaptation, with what you're saying in mind, can you expect from an NBA athlete in season? Sure, I think,
1: I think it depends. To give you sort of a, you know, that. Cliche answer. It certainly depends. I mean, if we're talking about a low minute guy or a guy who doesn't really see the floor, isn't really in the rotation, we can certainly uh, expect some adaptation to occur. If we go down the other end of the spectrum, a guy who's playing really high minutes on a night-to-night basis, depending on the adaptation that you're looking to um, that you're looking to chase. It's, it's very much dependent on that as well. So if we're trying to chase hypertrophy, for example, um, obviously your hypertrophy requires a caloric surplus. Plus, if you slap on top of all of this output, it's just output, 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 and then you take them in the weight room and there's more output there, there's more volume, there's more expenditure. If you're not matching that with the appropriate nutritional intervention, you could actually be taking away from the original goal or the adaptation that you're looking for. If it's hypertrophy, then you'll likely be doing a little bit more volume than, say, strength work or power work. And if you're not supporting that with the appropriate nutrition, then you're probably actually going a little bit backwards in terms of breaking them down and not necessarily building them up appropriately. Um, strength, on the other hand, power, on the other hand, I really do believe that if you uh, if you plan it appropriately and you plan it accordingly, um, that you can get adaptation during the season, that you can't. Um, I think another caveat to that that we need to think about too is when we evaluate and when we measure to assess progress as well. As I said, there's so much randomness in the schedule that we can't possibly locate a a seven-day period that's exactly the same at the start of the season and the end of the season, Um, trying to standardize as much as we can the testing um, sessions to assess if you have gotten an adaptation or not becomes difficult in and of itself. So that's where a lot of this autonomous monitoring or invisible monitoring as it's sort of been uh, dubbed in the literature and uh, and in the industry, I think is um, extremely important nowadays more than ever.
0: Yeah. Jesse, I'm really aware of time and I know you've got a, a game to get to this evening, but where's the best place for the listeners to follow you?
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, I'm quite a, a passive contributor to on twitter i would say like i'm very frequent on there um i don't sort of post too much but i think there's some great content on there and it's a it's a really nice resource so on there i think my username is jesse p green uh, i believe uh and also you know the old-fashioned email as well is a great way to get me um you can use that it's jgreen at kings.com
0: cool well mate well um we'll put that in the show notes and Really appreciate your time, especially on a on a game day. So, yeah, thanks for coming on and, uh, and thanks for the transparency on, on what you do and how you do it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Anytime, mate. Thanks for the chat. And again, I think you're putting a really valuable resource out there. So good job to you as well.
0: Big thanks to Jesse for coming on today's show. I've really enjoyed getting to know him over the conversations that we've had recently. And... I don't think I'll be alone in saying that I appreciate the level of transparency and detail of what he does and how he does it as a sports scientist. Hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Informed Performance podcast. Thanks for listening and catch us next week for more performance and sports medicine insights.